Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word today, and I just pray that you would uh, allow me to do it with clarity, not to stumble. And I just pray for ears and hearts that would be receptive to what we have to say today. Father, that your word would go forth in a powerful way and that we would act on what we hear. So bless us through the word this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the topic for today, as you can see, is where is God? And as we said, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. I don't know about you, but uh, occasionally I lose things in my house. And generally when that happens, uh, everybody runs for cover because normally what I do is ransack the entire place to try and find it. Or maybe you've been driving somewhere and you uh, can't seem to find where you're going. Maybe the landmarks have changed or you haven't been there for a while and you get this feeling of uh, disorientation or maybe confusion. Well, if that's you this morning, uh, one thing that we know for sure is that you are right here. You're somewhere under that red dot right there uh, at New Life Presbyterian Church, and so if you were slightly confused or wondering where you're at, there you are. Esther's an interesting book. And we're really going to be talking about God's providence and faithfulness today. But if you know anything about Esther, this is a great Bible trivia uh, answer, by the way. Esther's the one book in the Bible that doesn't mention God, the temple, or divine providence directly. It's a book, uh, probably among a lot of books in the Bible, that really is about providence, but you don't see it directly. Esther's also one of two books that are written about women. Ruth is the other book. And in the Old Testament, as well as other places, God says that we're to pay special attention to widows and orphans. And if you look at these two books about women, interestingly enough, Ruth is a widow, and Esther, as we'll see, is an orphan. Now, Esther is a great story. Um, it has all the elements of the human condition in it. It's got lust, it's got pride, it's got arrogance, it's got incompetence. So as we go through it, what we're going to see is that there's a wide range of human behaviors on display. Uh, and as you'll see, it, as we go through the book, and if you're familiar with the story, it probably would actually make a great TV miniseries. So the main characters in the story are Esther, Esther is a young Jewish girl, and every story needs a hero or a heroine, so in this story, Esther would be the heroine. The king, uh, depending on your translation, is either Ashwaras or Xerxes, depending on whether you have an NAS or an ESV or an NIV, and he is the king of the Persian Empire. The first queen we'll encounter in the story is Vashti, and you see she's queen for a while. It uh, doesn't last very long. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Uh, he's also her guardian. 
her benefactor and, as we'll see, a mentor. He really directs her and guides her through the events that happen to her. And finally, every story needs a villain. And so the villain in this case is the king's chief advisor, uh, Haman. And Haman is called an Agagite. Now, if you think back uh, earlier in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And Agag, Saul was commanded to uh, fight the Amalekites and to kill King Agag, and he disobeyed that command. And that was one of the reasons why the kingdom was stripped away from him. So part of what this shows us is that between Haman and the Jewish people, there's an enmity there, and that enmity goes all the way back into the Old Testament between the people of Amalek and the Jews. So that's the background. We're going to look at three points today, and really this, we're going to look at the entire book. The entire book has nine chapters, but we're just going to sort of look at pieces of the story, and we're going to divide it up into three parts, and we're going to look at three points associated with those parts. The first point is that God is in the social institutions that are present around us. The second point is that God is in all of the events of our lives. And then finally, the third point is that God has a specific plan and a purpose for every minute of our lives. So let's look at the first point. God is in the social institutions present around us. One of the things, if you're like me, that I think we tend to do as believers is we tend to avoid many aspects of culture, things like the educational system maybe, or the political system, or entertainment, because we feel that they're either corrupt or they're ineffective. And I think what we're going to see through some of the examples that we're going to look at here is that those institutions are there for a reason and the reason is to benefit us and that they have been ordained by God for a specific purpose. So we're going to look at some examples in Scripture of ways in which the institutions played a role. But the first part of the story really concerns how Esther ends up as queen. So let's start there. If you're familiar with the story, as we said, Esther is an orphan girl who is taken in and raised by Mordecai. The king has a sort of a week-long party. He's been imbibing much wine, the story tells us. And as a result, he decides that he wants to parade his trophy wife before all of his friends that are in the feast with him. And so in the beginning of the story, he orders the queen to come forth. Obviously, she's very beautiful, and so he wants everybody to see what she looks like. And she refuses. When she does that, immediately it sets things into turmoil. The king and his advisors meet, and they can't believe that she's done that. And what they're afraid of is that this is going to go forth throughout the entire kingdom, and that as a result, wives are no longer going to respect their husbands. And so what they do is they pass an edict. First of all, they depose Vashti, and that's the end of her in the story. We don't read about her anymore. After that, they issue an edict that goes out to all of the provinces in the country. And basically, it's a call for all eligible young virgins to be brought into the palace 
and to be auditioned as possible queens. And Esther just happens to be one of those young women. So they're brought into the palace. Now keep in mind that Esther is an exile. She's not a Persian. And so this had to be possibly very difficult or strange for her. She has to come in. All of these women were put through a, a regimen of beauty treatments and a special diet. And the whole point of this was for them to basically audition one night before the king. And as a result, the one that the king liked the best would end up being queen. And so if you think about that as somebody that's not from that culture and somebody that possibly doesn't understand that, there would be a, a real possibility that she would not want to do that. But we read in the story that not only does she go, but she also excels to the point that all the advisors really favor her the most because of her attention to what's going on. And sure enough, she goes in, she spends the night with the king, and the king decides that she is indeed his favorite, and so Esther becomes queen. At the same time, Mordecai, who is her benefactor, is somebody that is prominent in the community. And if you understand how things worked in the Old Testament, gates were very important in many of the cities because the gate was where a lot of business was transacted and a lot of official things took place outside the gate. Well, Mordecai happens to be outside the gate and hears of a plot of two men who want to assassinate the king. So by this time, Esther has become queen. Esther is in the palace. Esther is the favorite of the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther of the plot. She relays that information to the king. And then the two men that were going to do that are captured and executed. So in the first part of the story, what we see with Esther is that she embraces the culture and the institutions that she's a part of. And she does that willingly. Another place we might look is in Daniel. Now, most of us, when we think about Daniel, we think of prophecy, we think of the end times, we think of visions of strange things. But if you go back to the very beginning, we might ask ourselves, how did Daniel get to that position? Okay. Once again, was Daniel part of the culture that he was in? No, he was what? He was in exile as well. And we see in this passage in Daniel 1 that the king commanded his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel of the royal family and nobility, youths without blemish, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, etc., etc., to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So clearly, Daniel and his companions, even though they're exiles, they're obviously uh, intelligent, they're obviously probably attractive young men, but they're really conscripted into the service of a government and a king that they're really not a part of. And so once again, how do we respond in that kind of a situation. Well, they responded gladly and willingly, and once again, they did a great job.
Later in uh, chapter 1 and verse 20, the king finds Daniel and his companions ten times better than the magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom. So once again, an educational system that's foreign to them, and what does he do? Becomes a part of that, embraces that, and then is able to use that to further God's purposes. This is the passage that Josh read this morning to us. This has really more to do with uh, politics and the legal system than it does the educational system. But this was the passage in Acts that Josh read about Paul. And the key thing here was, once again, this is after the Philippian jailer is converted, but they were imprisoned. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, that meant that they were a cut above the other people, but at the same time, it gave them very specific rights and privileges. And if you read through the book of Acts, what you find is that Paul was never unafraid to roll those out when he needed them. He was very aware of the judicial system. He was very aware of his rights as a citizen. And in this case, they were beaten publicly and they were imprisoned, which was a no-no. And so what Paul says is that you have beaten us and thrown us into prison and we're Romans. And you can see by what Josh read and from the response there that the magistrates were afraid because they knew that they had committed something that was really wrong. So once again, this is an institution and you've got the Apostle Paul being a part of that and really using that to advance the gospel. This is repeated again in Acts 22. If you went to that passage, you'd see the same thing. Paul reminds them that he is indeed a Roman. Another place uh, is the trial and crucifixion of Christ. Now we think of that uh, just in terms of what that does and the salvation that it brings, but it was also a legal and a political event. Okay. In Matthew 27, the governor says, which of the two do you want me to release for you? This was a custom that was in place where the crowd really could pick the person that they wanted to be released. And as you read through this account, Pilate really knows that Jesus is innocent. He really knows that all this is is a religious dispute between the Sanhedrin and between Jesus. And I think he really wants an out. He really wants a way to get out of this and save face and really kind of brush this all aside and move on. So here's this out. I'll put two people out for the crowd. We'll put Jesus, we'll put Barabbas, and I'll let them decide. And at that point, it's really not my call. The crowd will make the choice. That happens. Pilate says, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all answered, as we know, let him be crucified. He said, what evil has he done? He knew that he hadn't done anything. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. If you go further into Mark, we get an idea about who Barabbas actually was. He was a rebel. He was one who had committed murder. 
and he was an insurrectionist. And the crowd asked Pilate to do what he usually did, and that was to release him. Crucifixion as a punishment, we know, was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was reserved for the worst criminals. And typically, a lot of those criminals were enemies of the state. So using that definition, we know that Barabbas fit the bill. And what Pilate was worried about, I think, was a rebellion starting around Jesus. And so this was a very convenient way for him to crucify Christ. But once again, if you read through this, it winds its way through the Roman court system and so the institutional part of, of the trial and the crucifixion is not something that we normally think about, but clearly it's part of the entire story. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian, and in 1880, he uh, had an address, and he talked about something that he called sphere sovereignty. I have a quote here from Kuyper. What Kuiper said was that in the fall, the relationships that we see in society were all broken. We all know that our relationship with God was broken. But what he said was that the relationships among men were broken as well. And so there needed to be a mechanism put in place, maybe not necessarily to restore those relationships, but at least to manage or make those relationships more orderly. And so he said that what God had done is created what he called these spheres of influence. So things like business and, and the schools and politics and things like that had been created and put in place to make our life more orderly. So you see in the quote, and I've highlighted part of that, on earth one actually does not meet God himself in things visible. But sovereign authority, meaning God's authority, is always exercised through an office held by men. So what Kuiper was saying, and I think what we see throughout scripture, is that the institutional fabric that we see around us is something that's been put there by God for our benefit. A few weeks ago, Pastor Bob was talking about how we respond to culture. And he had two ways in which we respond. He said one way is that we assimilate. Effectively, we become like everybody else. The other response was to evacuate what I call the Christian bunker mentality. We retreat, kind of build our own little communities and don't have any contact with the outside world. I think there's another way that we as Christians can interact that's more beneficial, and I say we should participate. There are lots of ways in which we can work through the existing institutions that are there to further the gospel. A couple of examples here, Kids Hope. We know the Kids Hope works through the school system. So that's an opportunity that we have to work through that institutional system to benefit children that really need help. Another way is through Reach Yorktown. Reach Yorktown uh, is a partnership of a number of different churches, but it also works with community service organizations to reach the poor in our community. So these are two ways, and there's two, there's lots of others, that as believers, we can partner with the institutions around us 
to make the community better, but to also share God's love. Well, the second point that I want to make today is that God is in all of the events of our lives. We pick up the story here. Uh, The second part of the story really has to do with Haman and his personality. Haman is full of himself. Uh, Haman's a powerful man, and he wants everybody to recognize that he is. And so typically he's out by the gate, and as a matter of courtesy, people that walk by would bow. There's one person that won't do that, though, and that's Mordecai. Mordecai passes, and Mordecai refuses to bow. Now, we don't know that uh, Mordecai doesn't do that because of his religious beliefs. It really doesn't say. All that we know is he refuses to do it. And this enrages Haman. And so Haman goes into the king, and he says, King, there's a group of people in our kingdom that basically reject your authority. And they refuse to do the things that you ask them to do, which is really not true. There was only one person that he was targeting, and that was his enemy, Mordecai. But he framed it in terms of the entire group of the Jewish people. He said, I think to solve this problem, we need to get rid of these people. And in addition... I have a very large sum of money that I will contribute to the king's treasury just to facilitate the process. The king agrees to this, and so they draft an edict. The edict goes to all the provinces around Susa, which is the capital city, and it basically declares open season on Jews. They can be exterminated on a particular date. Their property can be taken. And so Mordecai hears of this. Now, the other interesting cultural feature to this, and you see this in other places in Scripture, this is written in the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And when this happened, those laws could not be revoked. So once they're in place, we see a little later that there's some fudge factor there, but once they're in place, they can't be changed. So Mordecai hears of this, and he goes out into the public square and basically acts as a man in mourning tears his clothes, wails. Esther hears of this and she says, you know, she sends clothes out and and she says, you really can't do this. You're making a spectacle of yourself. When that happens, Mordecai confronts her with the text that we read this morning as our sermon text and said, our people are going to be exterminated. Up to this point, she's kept her identity hidden, but she's a Jew. And as a Jew, she can be killed just like everybody else as soon as somebody finds out. And so Mordecai says, you've been put here for a purpose, and your purpose is to save your people. Esther responds by saying, I haven't seen the king in a month. And if you go in to see the king, unless you're invited, unless the scepter is extended, then the penalty is death. So the dilemma that she faces, and this is really the turning point in the story, the dilemma that she faces is, go to the king without being invited, I die. I don't do that, the edict goes out, sooner or later somebody else finds that I'm a Jew, they say, it's written in law, I die there. Not much of a choice to me. 
Scripture, once again, is full of individuals who have a similar kind of roller coaster life. If you think of Esther's life, she started off as an orphan. She was adopted by somebody of means, so obviously her life got a lot better. And then finally she ends up as queen, and then she's having one of those why me moments. Why am I in this position? Why do I have to make such a hard choice? If we think about Joseph in Egypt, we know that Joseph was uh, his daddy's favorite son. He gets sold into slavery by his own brothers. A group of Edenite traders get him, and he ends up in Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar was the captain of the guard, and so obviously he's a man of means as well. But once again, think of Joseph. Came from a good family, was sort of the golden child, and here he is today. So how can you respond to that? Well, he responds by accepting that God is with that and excelling. We see in verse 4, Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar and attended him, and so he was made overseer of the entire house and put in charge of all that he had. God caused everything that he did to succeed. Well, that didn't last long, as we know, because Potiphar's wife found him attractive and tried to seduce him, and he ended up in prison. So he goes from being a slave, but being a slave in a fairly good place, probably, managing the entire household to being thrown into an Egyptian prison. How did he respond to that? The same way. God blessed what he did, and we see in verse 23 that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Joseph was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And we know how that story finally ends up out of prison in front of Pharaoh. He interprets the dreams, and we see Pharaoh say, I've set you over the entire land of Egypt. So ultimately, he's the number two person in the entire country. And as we know, he saves his own family as well as the entire nation from famine through his wise judgment. So daddy's boy sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he ends up saving the entire country, and God was in all of that. The Apostle Peter is kind of a different story. We know that in, in the beginning, uh, Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, and so we see this passage. I tell you, you're Peter. On this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're moving in this direction. And then what happens? Jesus says, you'll deny me. Peter says, I won't deny you. Jesus says, before the end of the night, you'll deny me three times. And what happens? Peter denies him three times, the rooster crows, and we find that Peter wept because he knew what he had done. Fast forward to Pentecost, Peter's, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and we see that in Acts 16, 3,000 people were added through baptism as a result of that. Brash, impulsive, denier of Christ, preacher at Pentecost. History says that Peter was crucified upside down 
because he felt he was unworthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did. This is the point at which I embarrass my son, who's sitting right there. This is two uh, announcements. The one on the right is from Landon's graduation from high school, which was about a month ago. The one on the left is actually uh, a bookmark from a funeral home that uh, did my youngest brother's funeral. Uh, he uh, was sitting at an intersection and a semi-truck ran a red light and hit the car and killed him. That's about 15 years old now. That was in 1999. He would have been 50 years old this year. And I remember both of those things like they were yesterday. With Landon, um, we were in, I was in the delivery room for both of our children. We have two boys. And with Landon, the doctor turned to me and asked me if I wanted to cut the umbilical cord and handed me a pair of scissors. And I thought, it's, you know, it's an umbilical cord. How tough can it be? It rolled out from under the scissors. It was like cutting a battery cable. I couldn't believe it. So finally I snipped it, and so I was the one that, you know, sort of ceremonially cut the tie between Landon and his mom. With my brother Tom, uh, my sister and I had to actually go shopping for clothes, the clothes that they ended up burying him in. And so um, two events in my own life that uh, were polar opposites, and I know you've all had the same things happen to you. But one of the things that I think this does is, is it allows us to have perspective. It's what I call the long view. The moment may seem harsh, it may seem difficult. Josh talked about this this morning in terms of suffering. But if we're believers, then that long view allows us to see beyond where we're at right now and to really think about uh, things from an eternal perspective. If you're not a Christian, though, you really have a short view because all that's in front of you is what's in front of you. You really have no hope because you have no relationship with God. But for us as believers, we have the opportunity to see through those difficult periods of our life and to remember the times in which we uh, had great joy. Well, the last point that I want to make is that God has a plan and a purpose for every moment of our lives. To end the story, um, Esther decides to go into the king. She does that. He gives her an audience and he sees that she's troubled. And he says, what's wrong? She says, well, if you come to a banquet tonight with Haman, then I'll tell you what's wrong. So they go to a banquet, and the king asks her what's wrong, and she says, well, uh, you need to come back tomorrow for another banquet. Well, that night the king can't sleep, and so he asks for the books of the country to be brought in, and somebody reads about the plot to kill him. And the king said, what did we do for Mordecai? And they said, well, we really didn't do anything to recognize him. And he said, well, we need to do something. And at that time, Haman comes into the court, and he says, Haman, come here. He says, I have something that I want to ask you. What would you do for someone that the king favors? Now, as you read the story and you read more about Haman, Haman's immediate response was, well, this is me, so I better make it good. He said, well, I'd dress him up in fine robes, and I'd put him on the king's horse, 
and I'd parade him through the entire kingdom announcing his greatness. He says, that's a great idea. You need to do that for Mordecai. So Haman is crushed because he thought it was him. And so he dutifully does that, and he goes home that night, and he's talking to his wife, and he's explaining his frustration and everything that's happened during the day. And she says, I think you're in big trouble. I think the king really likes this guy, and you're opposed to him. And that, you should be nervous. But she said, go to the banquet tonight, and things will be better. Well, he goes to the banquet that night, and he finally, the king asks Esther, what is it that you desire? I'll give it to you. And she said, well, there's a plot to kill me. Not just to kill me, but to annihilate and assassinate all the people in my race. And I really would like it if you would stop that plot. The king is enraged and says, who's responsible for this? And she says, Haman. At that point in time, the king becomes enraged. He leaves the room. And Haman knows that his life is in danger at that point. So he goes over to the couch where Esther is and he falls down to plead for his life. And at that point, the king walks back in and thinks that he's actually trying to assault her in the palace. So he says, take him out and execute him, which he does. Now there's another part of the story there that we don't really have time to go into, but he was executed on a gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. At that point, they draft a new edict. The new edict says, cancel the old one. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves, and we, what we find is that the nation is preserved as a result. The important thing, I think, as we close is what I call are such a time as this moments. Obviously, this was a point in time and a place where Esther was put there for a specific reason. Now, we may, may not be in a position to save an entire race, but there are things that we can do to advance the gospel if we simply think about them. And I know if you're like me, uh, there are probably opportunities that are put in front of me all the time that fly right by me because I'm not aware of them. We have the opportunity to advance the kingdom. We need to look for those opportunities, those such a time as this moments. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be healed. Maybe it's a family member that you haven't talked to for a while. Maybe it's at work. Maybe there's a crummy job at work that nobody wants to do. Maybe you can do that. But there are opportunities that we all face, and we need to take advantage of those. And I'll leave with this, Matthew 10, 3. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you to provide those opportunities and to open our eyes. Father, help us to be aware of what goes on around us and to look for and to seize those moments you give us to advance your kingdom. For that, we will praise your name, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.